The year is 1963. World Series. Yankees versus Dodgers. The battle of the ages. The Yankees, of course, had the preeminent sluggers Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle. Maris was just two years off his record-setting 61 home runs. And, of course, the Dodgers, not known for their offense, but more so their pitching, had the amazing uh, duo of Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale, and also Johnny Padres, who was not a bad third starter. This, friends, was the battle of the ages in baseball terms. This was supposed to be the World Series of all World Series. It was supposed to be the greatest series ever. Game one, the Dodgers won 5-2. to two. Sandy Koufax pitched all nine innings. Game two, the Dodgers won 4-1. to one. Game three, the Dodgers won 1-0. to zero. Don Drysdale pitched all nine innings. And game four, the deciding game, the Dodgers won 2-1. to one. Sandy Koufax, a complete game. In four games, the mighty New York Yankees only accumulated four runs. The series that was set to be the battle of all the ages between the perennial champs in New York versus the champions of Los Angeles, it turned out to be an absolute flop. 4-0 sweep. Total blowout. Friends, in Haggai chapter 2, as we look at the last section of the book of Haggai today, the word of the Lord is coming to the prophet Haggai, and he's about to describe a battle for all the ages. A final battle for all the ages that would end up being a blowout. Turn, if you will, to Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 20. The title of my message today is this, The Battle of the Ages. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Now before we read this, just briefly, I wanted to uh, put in our minds a quote from a theologian who I believe really nailed it on the head with respect to this, this final three, four verses of Haggai. Um, a man by the name of Mortier said this about the last four verses of Haggai. He said, the final verses of this book reveal Haggai as the literary equivalent of an impressionist painter. That is to say, he gives general tone and effect without elaborate detail. What we're going to see Haggai doing in these final four verses is painting broad strokes about a coming battle. He's going to be painting broad strokes about a final battle of the Lord. He's not going to give elaborate detail on this battle, but he's going to, like an impressionist painter, give you and I a grand scale look without intimate details on what this final battle will look like. Starting in verse 20 of Haggai chapter 2, it says this, And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, that is the ninth month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. 
I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. And the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask right now that Your Spirit would guide us as we study Your Word. Uh, We need Your Spirit to help us understand and to recognize what Your Word is teaching here. And I ask, Father, that above all, that You would take this teaching and that You would apply it to our lives, that You would help us to understand You more. Help us to understand what this battle actually is and how we could possibly learn from this text here today. In Christ our Lord's name we pray. Amen. Again, verse 20, it says this, And again the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Now, we, we are in our fourth and final study in the book of Haggai. Now, time frame for this book is right around 520 B.C. 520 B.C. And what has happened is, the Israelites, the people of God, have left exile and slavery... Previously, they were in exile in the land of Babylon, but they've come out of that exile and they've come back to Jerusalem. And they found their temple in ruins. And so they start rebuilding the temple of God. And you can, start, you can read about this in the books of Ezra, in the book of Ezra and the early parts of Haggai. They start rebuilding the temple of God and all the while God is admonishing them and encouraging them and reminding them to stay the course. And here we are, 520 B.C., Haggai is speaking to Zerubbabel, who is the political leader of Israel. The political leader of Israel in 520 B.C. And he has a final message for this political leader in Israel. While verses 10 to 19 of chapter 2 were directed primarily to the priests, this second prophecy, spoken on the same day, beginning in verse 20, was spoken to Zerubbabel, the political leader. And this is the Lord's message. He says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, verse 21, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horse and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Now, if you were here last week, excuse me, if you were here two weeks ago, we came across a text in chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, that spoke of the shaking of heaven and earth. And when we see that term shaking in chapter 2, verse 21, when we see the mention of the shaking of heaven and earth, we can be sure that the topic at hand is none other than the day of the Lord. The coming eschatological, that means future, Day of the Lord, when God will mightily intervene in the world's affairs to crush evil and establish His kingdom. Two months prior to this prophecy that we read today in verses 20 to 23, Haggai had mentioned the shaking, the shaking of heaven and earth. Now let's take a look at that previous text that we learned from two weeks ago. Notice what it says 
in Haggai 2, verses 3 to 9. He says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord. Verse 6, notice. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth. Corresponding to verse 21 of our text today. The sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations. And the desirable things of the nations shall come. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. Now, two weeks ago, when we studied this very text, we learned that Haggai was not merely speaking of the physical temple that the Jews were building in 520 B.C. He was not merely speaking historically of the second temple in particular. It is true that the second temple did incur riches and glory and a measure of peace. It is true that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to this second temple that they built in 520 B.C. And He brought healing and salvation. He ushered in a new era for God's program. And so a measure of riches and glory and peace were brought to this temple, but not in the manner that Haggai describes in verses 3 to 9. Haggai's prophecy in, the second, uh, in chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, was not just looking at the second temple. It was looking beyond the second temple. Take a look at this illustration here. Haggai, when he was speaking of the second temple, in chapter 2, verses 3 to 9, He was not only indicating that a measure of glory and honor and peace and riches would come to this temple, but that moreover, and greater still, in the final temple of God, in the millennial temple, which is described in Ezekiel 40 to 48, in this temple, Haggai was looking past the second temple on into the future, saying in this final temple, the riches of the nations will come. The glory of God will come in its fullness. The peace of God will be executed in all the world. While a measure of fulfillment took place in the second temple, Haggai was looking beyond it, onto a final temple. A temple in which Jesus Christ would rule and reign the world during the millennial kingdom. Now that was what we learned two weeks ago about the shaking of heaven and earth. Why am I spending so much time in review of this text? Because in chapter 2, verse 6, we see the reference to shaking that we find in chapter 2, verse 21. And if we've come to understand that the shaking in 2, verse 6 refers ultimately to a final future day of the Lord, shouldn't we also consider that the shaking of verse 21 refers also to a final eschatological day of the Lord? It would seem so. Now turn again to verse 21. It says this, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. 
I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one, by the sword of his brother. Clearly a great battle is in view here. Clearly it's a day in which pagan nations, Gentile nations, are overthrown. A day in which the horseman and his rider are given a spirit of confusion. They fall down. Some of them slay their own brother, their own countrymen. For those of you looking to examine this portion of Scripture a little, little close, more, more closely, I, I would urge you to check out Zechariah 12.4. In it, you'll find the same kind of language regarding the confusion of the horse and the rider. There's a spirit of confusion sent upon these people. And Zechariah, who was prophesying the same time as Haggai, spoke to this very thing that Haggai did. But before we dig any further into this battle, before we go deeper, let's look early on at the final verse in Haggai and see if this helps us to understand this text. Verse 23, it says this, the final verse in Haggai. It says, in that day, that is, in in this day of that great battle, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. In that day, in the day of battle, in the day of the Lord, God says He is going to take Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, the political leader in 520 B.C. He's going to take Zerubbabel And he calls him my servant, the son of Shealtiel. And he's going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. For he has chosen him, says the Lord. So here in verse 23, we've come to learn that this great day of battle described in verses 21 and 22 will be overseen on some level by Zerubbabel, whom God has chosen. Now, on a precise historical level, on an exact historical level, verse 23 poses a real problem to readers of Haggai. You see, Zerubbabel is never spoken of in the Bible as having led Israel into a battle. Zerubbabel is never spoken in the Bible as having led the people of God into any great battle, let alone a small one. Such a battle is never recorded in Scripture, nor is it recorded by any historians of that day. Is this reason to doubt the Bible? Is the lack of historical fulfillment of what it says in verses 21 to 23, reason to distrust the Word of God? In a word, no. I want to explain why it is that because on a historical level, precisely this exact thing did not occur. Zerubbabel did not lead Israel into a physical battle, into a great and mighty battle. It didn't happen. It never happened. But is that reason to just distrust the Bible? I'm going to say no. And I want to explain why that is as we begin to see what Haggai meant by this very prophecy. 
Lest we forget, friends, in all of this, the shaking of heaven and earth in verse 6 of chapter 2 was not a prophecy that was ultimately fulfilled in 520 B.C. The prophecy in 2.6 still looks forward to a final fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So also, the shaking of heaven and earth in chapter 2, verses 21 to 23 The great battle, though seemingly requiring fulfillment in the person of Zerubbabel, still looks forward to a final fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ at His second coming. You say, how do you know? How do we know that verses 21 to 23 look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ Himself? Well, there are numerous indicators that this is the case. And I want to list four of them. I've already mentioned the shaking of heaven and earth, but I want to list four others. And the question that I'm answering is this. Why does Haggai, chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, refer to the final battle led by the Messiah, Jesus Christ? The first is this. The first answer is this. The extent of the battle victory. The extent of the battle victory. Now, by this I mean, when you read verses 21 to 22, you see a victory pronounced in those verses that is unparalleled to any other kind of battle that you find in the Scriptures. You see a victory that is pronounced in verse 22 that is written with such grandiose language, such a spectacular, monstrous event, that we should expect that this kind of a battle might take place at the end of the age. Now, that's one indicator. In and of itself, it's not a good reason to believe that that this battle refers to the final day of the Lord. But nevertheless, it is evidence leading toward that conclusion. So that's one indicator. That the extent of the battle, victory, indicates that this is going to be a final battle. Two, correspondence with Zechariah 14. Now, we're not going to turn here today, but I urge you in your personal studies, if you'd like, to turn to Zechariah 14 on your own. You see, Zechariah was a contemporary. He was a friend of Haggai. They most likely knew one another, perhaps friends, and they joined together to urge Israel to follow the Lord. Zechariah is the book right after Haggai. Zechariah ends his prophecy in chapter 14, the chapter I've listed above. What is the topic at hand at the conclusion of Zechariah's prophecy to Israel? At the conclusion of his prophecy to the same people group that Haggai was prophesying to? Haggai spends the entire chapter on the final day of the Lord. Haggai spends the entire chapter in verse 14 describing a final battle of God. A battle of monstrous and spectacular proportion. He mentions things like all the nations will be gathered to this battle, verses 2 and 3. He mentions things like confusion in battle, verses 13. He mentions things that Haggai also mentions, all the Gentile nations being brought to this battle. Confusion between horse and rider. What Haggai says to Israel is what Zechariah says to Israel. How Haggai ends his prophecy to Israel is how Zechariah ends his prophecy to Israel. They both conclude their prophecy saying the great battle 
is coming. A great battle is coming. Number three. Haggai refers to Zerubbabel. The Lord refers to Zerubbabel, I should say, as my servant whom I have chosen. Verse 23. Here's the kicker, friends. Zerubbabel is given two descriptions in verse 23 that occur nowhere else in the book. He is described as God's servant and is chosen by God. Such titles were not given haphazardly by the Lord. These titles were usually reserved for those who maintained a special status in God's kingdom. In particular, the term my servant, the term my servant was applied to men like Abraham, Moses, David, and ultimately the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel was given these titles in this final verse in Haggai because he was a descendant of King David, through whom would come the final Messiah and Davidic King, Jesus Christ. We're not going to turn there right now, but in Matthew chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, you'll find Zerubbabel listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He is listed as one of those in the line of King David himself, through whom would come the Messiah. Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel was in the Davidic lineage. And that, friends, is a huge, huge indicator that what is being said to Zerubbabel also relates to the final day of the Lord. Now, with respect to Zerubbabel's lineage, this is kind of interesting. You're going to see why in just a minute. But bear with me, because in the end, you're going to see the significance of of this Slide. Zerubbabel, uh, well, let's start with uh, Jehoiakim here in the top left. His name is Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, or Coniah. He's known by three names in the Old Testament. Now, this man was a king in Judah right around the time of 597 B.C. This king of Israel, the king of Judah, was an evil king. He did not do well in the eyes of the Lord. Jeconiah did not, or Coniah. He did not do well in the eyes of the Lord, and ultimately, not, he did not lead them into final exile, but ultimately, Jeconiah was taken to Babylon. Okay, next slide. There we go, Babylonian exile. Jeconiah was taken to Babylon as a result of his wickedness. The Lord banished him to Babylon. Now, following Jeconiah, there was one final king of Judah. His name was Zedekiah. Okay? And Zedekiah was Jehoiachin's uncle. Zedekiah was the final king of Judah prior to the Babylonian exile. Both of these men were taken to Babylon, were taken into slavery... And Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. God's people were banished. But there was still hope. Because you see, through Jehoiachin came a grandson. And that grandson's name was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiachin, or Coniah, 
who was an evil man in the sight of the Lord, but his grandson, Zerubbabel, who was most likely born in Babylon, came through this dark period in Israel's history, came through the Babylonian exile and led the people back into Jerusalem in 539 B.C. and began to rebuild the temple in 538 to 516 B.C. Zerubbabel was the grandson of an evil man. Now, why do I bring up all of this? Take a look closely at what it says about Coniah in Jeremiah 22. It says, As I live, as I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, this is Zerubbabel's grandfather, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off, and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out, and your mother who bore you, into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. Why do I bring up this text? Because it mentions the signet ring. It mentions the signet ring. It mentions the same ring that Haggai mentions is going to be exemplified in the person of Zerubbabel, Coniah's grandson. While Coniah did evil in the sight of the Lord, took his nation into exile as a result of his wickedness, while the signet ring, which was once placed on his hand, excuse me, I should actually say, while, while he was actually God's signet ring on God's right hand, while Coniah had that symbol, if you will, of authority and power, a ring in which decrees were declared and sealed with that ring, while Coniah had experienced being the signet ring on God's right hand, God took it from him as a result of his wickedness. Only to have that ring reinstated, reestablished, if you will, on the person of his grandson, Zerubbabel, who became like God's signet ring on his right hand. The fourth and final indicator that this text refers to a final battle of God is the signet ring. Power and authority had been re-established. Power and authority had been re-established. While his grandfather had lost the status as God's signet ring, Zerubbabel would become the next representative in the line of King David to be recognized as God's signet ring, a ring of power and authority to be ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So these four things, friends, the extent of the battle victory, the correspondence with Zechariah 14, the terms my servant and chosen, the fact that Zerubbabel was in the line of King David, and the fact that Zerubbabel was likened to a signet ring on God's right hand. All of these things combine, along with the shaking of heaven and earth, to give us the clear indication that this battle described in Haggai 2, 20-23, is not just a battle for the immediate historical fulfillment. It is not just a battle that Zerubbabel will physically fulfill because he didn't fulfill it. 
But it is a battle in which Zerubbabel would be a type of the one to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, in final fulfillment. Robert Chrisholm, a theologian, puts it well. And hang with this quote. If you don't understand the top portions, you're going to understand the end. He says this about this text. He says, The words of Haggai 2, 21-23, though spoken directly to Zerubbabel, were not fulfilled in his day. How is one to explain this apparent failure of Haggai's prophecy? Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, was the official representative of the Davidic dynasty in the post-exilic, that is the post-Babylon, community at that time. As such, the prophecy of the future exaltation of the Davidic throne was attached to his person. Zerubbabel was, as it were, the visible guarantee of a glorious future for the house of David. In the progress of revelation and history, Jesus Christ fulfills Haggai's prophecy. Zerubbabel, I love that term, was the visible guarantee. The visible guarantee of a glorious future for the house of David, the people of Israel. When they looked at Zerubbabel, Israel knew that God would ultimately overcome. When they looked at Zerubbabel, In the line of King David, Israel could have confidence that God was not done with them. That He would one day come to their aid, crushing evil forever, establishing His kingdom forever. Which day of the Lord did Haggai prophesy about in chapter 2, verses 21 to 23? Once again, just like we saw the illustration of the temple in 2, 6-9, when Haggai is looking past the immediate temple, on into the future, final, millennial temple, so we too can have confidence that in the next portion of Scripture later on, in verses 21-23, to Haggai was looking through Zerubbabel's lineage on into the future when a final Davidic King and Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come to battle the nations who would gather against Him and the people of Israel. It's the same kind of prophecy. Which battle is this? It seems clear that the battle Haggai envisions is none other than the very battle Jesus Christ will personally engage in upon His return to earth. It's the Battle of Armageddon. Now, um, briefly, I want to remind us of where we are on the history of the world timeline, if you will. You'll see here, um, uh, I'm I'm indebted to uh, the Ministry of the uh, Free Trib Research Center for this graphic. They have outstanding graphics that help depict what it's going to look like in the last days. And let's walk through it. We're in the church age. This side of the cross of Christ, you and I are part of the church age. What can we expect? We can expect those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you who are Christians, if you do not, uh, if, if the Lord returns prior to our deaths, we will be raptured up. We will be raptured up from this earth, from this life, to be with the Lord forever. And those of us who die prior to that rapture will also be raised up on that day. We will be raised up at the rapture, at the onset of the tribulation, 
And from then on, we will always be with the Lord. Now, following that rapture, following the return of Christ in the clouds, if you will, there will be a period of great tribulation on earth. A period in which the Antichrist rises to the top in political and spiritual authority, if you will, along with the false prophet. And this Antichrist will ultimately lead all of the nations against Israel herself. All of the world's armies will be gathered together against Israel on the last day, the battle of Armageddon. And at the end of the tribulation, the second coming, also known as the first resurrection, if you will, at that time, at that time, Jesus Christ Himself will come with all the host of heaven. You and I will personally be with Him at this time, according to the Scriptures. And we will visibly watch as Jesus Christ comes, as Israel is being surrounded by all the armies of the world, and Jesus Christ will crush all the nations that have come up against Israel, that have opposed Him. That will occur at the second coming of Jesus Christ, the battle of Armageddon, if you will. At which time, after the battle is over, He will usher in a new millennial kingdom in which a new millennial temple will be built, such as we read about in Ezekiel 40 to 48. And in that millennium, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign forever. It will be a period of a thousand years in which Jesus Christ is not only the spiritual leader, but the political leader of the world. And you and I, those of us who have been faithful to Him, will rule and reign with Him. We will be given a measure of power and authority, which you can read about in so many passages, which I could point to if you have questions. We will be given a measure of authority in that kingdom with Christ. Now, I bring all of this up to tune our hearts into what this battle is that Haggai is describing. In Haggai 2, 20-23, the great battle that Haggai is looking forward to, that the word of the Lord, that, that, that God has given to him to give to the people of Israel, is this battle of Armageddon. What does the Bible tell us about that day? I don't want to go into it in detail. We don't have time today. But I do want to read it. I think it's helpful to be reminded of what this battle looks like and what will transpire. So, read through this with me. And on your own, at home, you may want to spend some time in personal study of this final battle of God, if you will. But take a look at the battle of Armageddon. At the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes, this is what's going to happen. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21, says this, Now I, John, saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Verse 20, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all of the birds were filled with their flesh. It's a, it's a sobering, sobering depiction of what will transpire on the final battle, if you will, at the end of the age. The Battle of Armageddon. In my title slide today, um, you noticed a valley. Uh, Battle of the Ages. You can't see that valley very well. Anybody know what that valley is? The Valley of Megiddo. The location, if you will, of the Battle of Armageddon. I've seen this valley. I got a chance, my wife and I got a chance to visit Israel. And um, we were able to look upon this valley. A valley in which Napoleon, King of France once said all the nations of the world could be gathered together in this valley. Supposedly, Napoleon said that without knowledge of what the Scriptures had to say about that very valley. Friends, what Scripture is saying here is going to take place. The battle described by Haggai, by Zechariah, by Isaiah, by Jesus Christ, by John in the book of Revelation, this great and mighty final battle is going to take place. The armies of the world are going to gather against Israel one day. They're going to gather against the people of God. And Jesus Christ Himself, descendant of David and Zerubbabel, the one who has the signet ring, who is the signet ring on God's right hand, the one who is God's servant, who is the chosen one, will claim a victory unlike any other victory in all of human history. He will finally and ultimately crush evil and all those nations who oppose Him. And He will establish His kingdom forever. What can we learn from this text today? How can we apply Haggai to 20 to 23 to our lives. Well, there's things to learn, first of all. There's things to be aware of in our understanding of the Word of God. First, like Haggai 2, 6 to 9, the prophecy of 2, 21 to 23 looks past, past immediate historical settings on to the final day of the Lord when Jesus Christ becomes King forever. Do not lose sight of this. You will find this kind of principle throughout many scriptures, in particular in the prophets. You will see them looking past the immediate historical fulfillment on into a final day of the Lord. Two, 
Inasmuch as the Lord is a God of peace, He is also a God of justice. Jesus Christ is coming again to destroy those who oppose Him. Um, this is not a popular topic. Uh, this is not a message um, that I would suppose uh, is something that pastors um, are excited to preach on. Because it describes the destruction of all those who oppose Him. And lest we forget, we ourselves, at one point in our sinfulness, were opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Until we came to faith in Christ, we ourselves were destined for eternal condemnation. And so, when I, when I go through a passage such as this, my heart grieves that this day is coming, and yet I know it needs to come, because our God is a God of justice. He is a God of holiness. And all those who sin against Him, who have not been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, God is going to have to judge them for what they have done, for how they have disobeyed Him. Three, Haggai 2, 21-23. Don't forget this. It was actually intended to encourage Israel that God still loved them and would fight for them despite the hardships that they faced upon returning to Jerusalem. Christians, you and I can also be encouraged that God always loves us and will guide us through adversity. Uh, the reason Haggai ends his prophecy like this is to say, take heart. The temporary affliction that you deal with, your battle with sin, your battle with those who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ, that battle is coming to an end. Jesus Christ Himself will bring the world to rights. He Himself will claim the final victory. And in closing, I want to leave with us an enduring lesson from Haggai. I think that uh, oftentimes we, we lose focus as we conclude a book. And I wanted to make a statement that, re, that, in my view, pertains to the entire book of Haggai. If I were to sum up Haggai, it would be this. Haggai reminds us that we, are not all, we will not always have the privilege of enjoying the fruit of our labor for the Lord in this life. But that should never deter us from worshiping the Lord or doing His work. We are contributing to God's work on earth as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Stay the course. Do not focus on results. Focus on being faithful to Christ who will one day claim the final victory and bless those who have kept their priorities in focus. Again, in Haggai, the people lost focus. They stopped building the temple for a time. They started building their own homes. Their sacrifices were, were abominable in the sight of the Lord, if you read it in the early part of chapter 2. And yet the Lord stood by them through all of their sin, through all of their immorality, through all of their lack of priorities. And He said, just because you don't see results doesn't mean you shouldn't worship and be faithful to Me. Oftentimes in our lives, in worshiping and following the Lord Jesus Christ, we will experience extreme hardships, extreme adversity, times of great trial and pain and suffering. Sometimes we will not always see the fruit of our labors in this life. But that should not deter you from your worship. It should not deter you from persevering with the Lord. Instead, it should motivate you that that final victory, that final battle is coming. And when the Lord Jesus Christ Himself claims victory and establishes His kingdom, He will look back on your life. And He will say, because you've done this, this is the measure of authority I'm giving to you in the kingdom. 
So the fruit of your labors is coming, friends. If you don't see it now, you will see it one day. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this special message here today. We thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, for just the way Haggai concludes this prophecy. This final battle that he describes is an encouragement to stay the course. It's a reminder to all of us that, Father, we need to remain faithful to You in spite of the fruit that we may or may not see in our lives, in spite of the blessings that we may or may not see on an immediate level, knowing full well that You will bless us in due time. Father, I thank You for these, um, these studies in the book of Haggai. I pray that You would bless this effort, that You would take this uh, timely, timely book and help it Help us to grow and learn from it, to better our lives, to make us more faithful to You and Your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.